0: with such joy that we, be, we get the chance to worship you through music. And we know that there's a lot of ways that we worship you through our time and our talents and our, our offering, our money and our acts of service and all these things. But we are so grateful and so thankful for music that you have put the gift and love of music into our souls as a means of connecting with us. And we know that's absolutely true. Again, you sing over us all throughout your word. Your kids are singing to you. They're singing to you out of love. They're singing to you for help. They're singing to you out of sadness. They're singing to you out of joy. God, help us to keep a song in our hearts for you all the time. This song of amazement of who you are, what you have done for us, what you'll continue to do through us. Please, please give us open hearts and open ears and open minds to to deliver uh, to Joe so that we can hear the word that you've given to him, to us, to hear today, us to hear today. I don't know. Lord, I'm just excited. We're so happy to be here. We love you and we thank you. We praise your name in the name of your son. Amen. All right. That was awesome.
1: Man, it's, uh, Al, that was really good. Um, You guys think it was good on the live stream, just wait till you hear it live in a few weeks or a few months, depending on how quickly we get going. Why you
0: say months? Now everybody going from so happy to be like, months.
1: I know. Well, we know that, uh, You know, there's some declarations about churches being essential, but we want you to know even before that, we were starting plans of how to phase back in meeting together. And right now, even today as we speak, we have uh, uh, a forward technical team checking out the uh, technology, the sound, the streaming, the Wi-Fi, the social distancing, and the cleanliness at the nightlife center as a remote viewing space for people to gather together. To watch the live stream. We have both inside and outside. And they're there today seeing how it works, seeing what the good and bad, the positive and negatives are. And um, you see we got the big fans when it's hot and it's got a canopy with a big TV outside and the two TVs inside. So we're going through all of that. Uh, you'll be hearing more about that in the very near future, about when we try to figure out how to launch that. Check your inbox. Keep an eye on your email inbox. And the Grace Life app will be sending a push note, by the way, If you don't have the Grace Life app on your phone yet, Sinner. Download it. Enable notifications so that we can keep you a phrase of what's going on. So I'm excited about what's going on at the Nightlife Center today. Kind of like a multi-site remote viewing place where people can gather. So you hear more about that. We're going to continue in our series on the Gospel of Mark. This is week 30 of our series. And by my math, we only have about 57 more to go. <clears throat> but maybe not that many, but it's a few. We're kind of near getting toward the middle. We've been in chapter 7. This week's message is entitled Gentile Wisdom. So can you think of a time in your life where you took action or said words that turned, about, turned out to be like really wise, <laughs> like maybe even perfect? I mean like you did or said something that was so full of wisdom you even shocked yourself. Wow. That was really smart of me. Maybe just a little bit. Maybe it was a spiritual moment. Maybe a moment of eternal clarity where your words inspired someone else who was in the pit of despair. What was it? Maybe it was in a political debate where you really had a one-line zinger that really got your opponent. Maybe you did something really smart at work and helped your boss, or maybe you made a really wise investment or some other business decision that really turned out well. Maybe it was a relationship you had wisdom enough to end. Or maybe a relationship you had wisdom enough to begin. Maybe it was some other big move you made from one place to another. Some big decision that just worked out and even impressed those around you. Wow, that was really smart. Well, today we're going to read the story about a Gentile woman whose most brilliant moment was also her most important moment of her life. We're looking at Mark chapter 7, verse 24 to 30. And from here he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, this is Jesus, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him, And came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Seraphonician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus says to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And let me just stop for a minute. You know those stories where Jesus says something that just seems outrageous? Like, for example, if your right eye offends you, pluck it out. If your right hand makes you sin, cut it off. Or how about this one? Sell everything you got and give it to the poor, then you can have eternal life. I mean, why does Jesus say stuff like this? I mean, and this statement here, I mean, how does this fit with the moniker of a Gentile, I mean, a gentle, not a Gentile Jesus, a gentle Jesus, humble Jesus? He says, she wants, you know, can you just heal my daughter? And he says, you know, I really shouldn't feed the dogs before I feed the children. What? Anyone else troubled by this? Well, look at her answer. Whoops. Verse 28. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement, the one she just made, this incredibly wise statement, you may go your way, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed, and the demon gone. So let's look at the history of this passage. What about man, what did he do, and why, and how did he do it? I want to look at the history of Jews and Gentiles. So Jesus, I mean not Jesus, Jews in general, especially during this time, viewed all Gentiles. As outcasts, unclean, unworthy of God's blessing, and isolated from spiritual truth. That's how they saw Gentiles. They saw the Gentile world in general, their government, their armies, their culture, even their diets are all cursed, under judgment, and a scourge on the earth. And that we're out there without spiritual hope of any type. And the Jewish universe at the time was that they are the only race that can attain salvation from Jehovah. The idea that God would ever interact with or bless a Gentile was actually stomach-turning to them. Revolting concepts they would not even consider. Remember the example of Jonah, who because he was refusing to preach to the Ninevites, and the scripture says he was afraid they would repent and turn to God, He had to spend time in the belly of a whale rather than preach the gospel to the Ninevites who were Gentiles. He was afraid that they would repent. And Jews in Jesus' time worked very diligently to keep everything Gentile separated from them as much as possible. This mindset mindset manifested itself socially, politically, politically, Culturally, spiritually, and just about every aspect of their life, there were fences around them to keep Gentile things out. As a matter of fact, many of the public rituals, one of the ones we studied early on in this chapter about hand washing, these public ceremonies, they were designed to communicate very clearly to Gentiles that they were spiritually inferior and that they were soiling God's people by just being around them. It was, in fact, if you'll allow me, religious, ceremonial, and theological xenophobia and racism. Very bad. But then something interesting happens. After we see this religious bigotry, there's this Gentile mission. So after a year in Galilee, with 99% of the Jews in that area having rejected Jesus, Or now some of them just want to destroy him. He leaves Galilee to go into, far into, serious, serious Gentile territory. To Phoenicia, and there's two cities. They're like twin cities, Tyre and Sidon. And these are ancient coastal cities. They've been around for centuries, a thousand years, maybe more. They are mentioned in the Old Testament, and they are a notorious Gentile region. But this time, it isn't just like in the past where he would go across the sea and come back. This isn't a quick foray. They end up staying there for quite a while, weeks, months. I mean, this is a significant foray into Jewish area. All of them there, the disciples and Jesus, for quite a while. But even this Gentile region, with no rabbi circuit to speak of, everyone knew who Jesus was and what he was capable of. So word had gotten around even to these unclean Gentiles. So predictably, the Gentile crowds begin to form around Jesus for the same reason the Jewish crowds did, hoping to get some blessing or some sort of healing. And this Gentile woman in the story has heard of him. She clearly knows who Jesus is. And she falls to his feet in a very public display of honoring this Jewish rabbi. This Gentile woman falls to the feet of a Jewish rabbi who everyone could assume thinks she is unclean. But she knows her daughter needs healing, and she has been given faith that Jesus can, in fact, do the job. That's not, that part of the story is not really so unusual, right? I mean, that's happened a few times. But what happens next is one of the most fascinating interactions in the Gospels. And at first read, you think Jesus is being cruel, And calloused to this Gentile woman, feeding into the whole xenophobia and racism that had kind of developed, right? Gentiles are dogs. And Jesus gives her, as she begs for help and mercy with her daughter, Jesus says something that is just an absolutely outrageous response to us looking in at first. In Matthew's account of this story, the Gospel of Matthew, it says that she relentlessly begs Jesus over and over again, and the disciples want Jesus to send her away. Well, of course they do. She's a Gentile woman. Get out of here. But she is persistent, and she will not stop going after Jesus. At first, Jesus ignores her. For how long? I don't know, but for a while. And Jesus finally, after ignoring this woman and the, Gentile, and the uh, disciples saying, Gentile woman, get out of here. After all of that, you would think Jesus would say, Stop. Don't, co- don't stop her from coming to me. No, that's not what he says. He says, put it up there just in case you don't remember, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Let me paraphrase. Aren't you aware, woman, that the blessings from God are for his children and not Gentiles? See, every good Jew would understand this statement that Jews were the children of God and Gentiles were dogs. And we're not talking about precious puppies in your house, beautiful dog like Megan's Valley. We're not talking about like those kind of dogs. We're talking about wild, mangy, nasty, disease-ridden dogs.
0: <clears throat>
1: I bet the disciples, when Jesus says this phrase, I bet you they just loved it. Yes, Jesus, Jesus. You get them. You tell that Gentile woman who she really is. Kick her out. It's why in Matthew we learn that the disciples wanted to send her away. She has no business as a Gentile woman asking this incredibly effective, miraculous Jewish rabbi for anything. It's outrageous. It's offensive. Great answer, Jesus. Yeah, woman, you hear that? Should we let the dogs eat before us children of God? Be gone, dog woman. Think about that for a minute. This is the scene. And if you're a Christ follower, you might be a little bit alarmed by this, right? What is Jesus doing? Let's look at the spiritual side. What about God or Jesus? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I want to talk about Jesus and the Gentiles. So just to relieve your fear, Jesus is is not being mean, heartless, or callous. He uses Jewish hatred of Gentiles as a straw man to bring everything to this incredible, teachable object lesson, this incredible moment, and he reveals two things. The first thing he reveals to the disciples, mainly, is that salvation is for all. In brilliant Jesus fashion, right, he destroys their fallacy that the blessings of Jehovah are only for Jews. In fact, if they knew their Old Testament like they think they do, they would know that there are many passages littered throughout the Old Testament about how God teaches salvation to Gentiles and how it was never limited just to Jewish people. Matter of fact, in Genesis 12, all the way back to Genesis, some of you may remember this when we did our Jesus in Genesis series a few years ago. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Even Paul understood his particular missionary work was toiling in the great harvest of Gentile souls that God had always intended to save. Romans 1.13, he says, talking to a Jewish audience in Rome, I have often intended to come to you, but thus far I have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, but as well among the rest of the Gentiles. We just got through the life of Joseph not too long ago, and we see how clearly the Pharaoh that Joseph was serving clearly became a believer, in my opinion. The Ninevites, when Jonah preached. So very clearly, Jesus knows that salvation is not just for the Jews. He has this information. He's God, after all, and he wrote all the stuff. God choosing the people of Israel was of grace, not merit. They were what God used to bring salvation to the world. Not because they were superior. I mean, a quick study of the Old Testament, and frankly, even the study of earlier in this particular chapter of 7, proves that the Jews were no better than the Gentiles in any way, shape, or form. And his seemingly cruel public remark about Gentile superiority is not really meant for her. It's more meant for his disciples. In that comment, and most likely their visceral encouragement and love of that comment, he is revealing their true heart. I mean, look, the entire region, the entire reason they came to this region is for Jesus to demonstrate what the Great Commission was going to look like. Go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and in the line with you always, even to the end of the age. He is showing them what's going to happen after he's gone. But there is also a second reason why he says this statement in the way he does. It is to reveal stunning insight to reveal this woman, this Gentile woman's superior faith and incredible wisdom. Both his initial refusal to answer and his seemingly callous response were designed to create this incredibly intense, emotional, climactic, teachable moment for his disciples. Notice that this woman... This Gentile, without any training, she knew the meaning of the statement right away. Gentiles knew that Jews saw them as dogs. Jesus makes that very clear. But what's stunning is her her response seems to indicate not only is she not offended by the statement, but in fact, because of the spiritual insight she has, she's fully prepared for it. She possesses this incredible superior wisdom into Jesus, understanding things that Jews don't understand. Even the disciples don't get it yet. This Gentile woman is desperate, but she also has unbelievable spiritual wisdom and insight. In and her response to this seemingly callous question, yes, Lord, that is true. But even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's saying, look, you're right. I'm at your mercy. Yes, I am a dog. You've called it out. But I'm a desperate dog. All I need are the crumbs from your table, Lord. You know what she has here? This is stunning to me. I hope hope you're getting a little bit chills just thinking about this whole scene, right? In In this new light I'm trying to paint for you. She has the kind of heart Jesus loves a humble, broken heart, just like King David, just like Peter. And Jesus is absolutely impressed. She has great insight, great wisdom, more than any of the Jewish guys he's been dealing with this whole chapter. And yes, even more than the disciples. I mean, think about it. He has been dealing, when it comes to those Pharisees, with, with super-educated, expert Jews. They know the law back and forth. The Torah. Most of them have not memorized. He's been teaching his disciples day and night for over two years. They've seen the miracles. They've seen him heal Gentiles, heal Jews. He's preached about the kingdom of heaven, the the good soil, the bad soil, the wheat and the tares. They've seen all the feeding of the 5,000. They've seen all of this for two years. They have seen him teach, yet they cannot even grasp yet what he's about. And she does it already. In just this one short interaction, boom, she gets it. Yes, Lord, but all I need are your crumbs. With no temple training... No rabbi to guide her. No Google to look things up. In her first meeting with Jesus, where do you think she got this insight? And look at Jesus' response. He says, for this statement, you may go. So the Gospel of Matthew says, he declared her faith was great. And the word great is the Greek word megas. Megas. So not only does he use the word megos, but you know what else he does, and this would really be offensive to the disciples. He uses, it's an adjective describing faith, and he uses a feminine gender adjective. This is really female greatness. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Gentile, fe- Megan, put your hands down. She's all excited back there. Gentile, female greatness of faith is what he says. I mean, it hits all the wrong buttons for the <laughs> disciples, Right? He says, it's not just faith here. It's much deeper than that. It's female mega faith. A gift that has produced stunning spiritual wisdom that puts you men to shame. Her faith and her spiritual insight had created this humble, relentless desperation to connect with Jesus just to get the crumbs from his table. Her response, as impressive as it was to Jesus, I imagine was really embarrassing for the disciples. I mean, here it is. Yeah, that's right. You tell him, Jesus. Get her out of here. Well, all I need is the crumbs. In his response, with them in earshot, because of this statement you just made, go your way, your daughter is healed. It's a public declaration to the disciples of, hey, see this woman right here? With great female faith, she gets it. You don't. I mean, it's got to be embarrassing. Humbling. Because after all they've seen and heard, they still didn't get who Jesus was. It's not a random story, by the way, in this chapter. This is on the heels of him blasting Pharisees for their fake spirituality. She is a stark contrast to the expert's the Pharisees he's been dealing with. And it's also a stark contrast to the blind stubbornness of the disciples who still didn't understand he came to save all. So in chapter 7 so far, you know what he's done? Get this. All Jesus has done this chapter is reject the most acceptable and accept the most rejectable. It's pretty amazing. Let's look at the personal side. What about us? What do we do? How do you do it? I want to talk about desperate and wise. This was my sermon preview. I was a little late this week getting it up, so I didn't get as many likes. I'm a little depressed about that. But, you know, maybe, can you go back and like it after, you know, like as an afterthought? That'd be great. Okay, just kidding. Um, From the Twitter account, what has more wisdom? Relentless pursuit of godliness or relentless pursuit of mercy? So I want to talk about the greater wisdom. Which wisdom impressed Jesus? Relentless Jewish pursuit of religious perfection, or the Gentile woman's relentless, humble pursuit of mercy? See, what impressed Jesus was her lack of spiritual accomplishment, her acknowledgement of that, and her understanding something 99% or 99.9% of the Jews in Galilee who have seen and heard far more than she has refuse to do. Instead, here's what their thought, their wisdom says. Their wisdom is, hmm, let's try to catch Jesus and let's try to trap him with our knowledge of the law. It would be very wise for us to come, somehow come up with a way and get this guy in a legal bind. That's a wise thing to do. That's their wisdom And her wisdom is, I just need your crumbs. This Gentile, living in a godless region, has stunning faith and wisdom, relentlessly driving her to Jesus for his mercy. Let me say it again. She lives in a godless region, has stunning faith and wisdom, driving her to have relentless pursuit for Jesus and his mercy. Spiritual insight born out of faith that created a humble heart necessary to relentlessly pursue Christ. So, I want to talk about the wisdom of faith. Here's what Paul says in Romans 9 30, the first half of the verse. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by what? Faith? See, one of the greatest. As a pastor, I've been in ministry a long time now. One of the greatest miracles of faith that I've ever seen is this incredible wisdom that it creates, and in turn, humility that it grants, and how it spawns a desperate, teachable heart. And while the world basks in earthly wisdom, seeking God through liturgy, benevolence, or religion, or perhaps wisdom that is intent on appeasing their own God, their own belly, their own earthly desires, and their own motives, and own goals. But what impresses Jesus is a heart with discernment to pursue God through the mercy of Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, James talks about this in our study of James, to so those of you that remember it. James says it is wisdom that God literally implants into us by the Holy Spirit. It's that wisdom that comprehends the true condition of our human dog hearts. See, this isn't natural insight that she has. It's not born of earthly understanding. It is a direct result of the gift of mega faith, both male and female. Wisdom that inspires us to overcome any earthly obstacle to get to the feet of Jesus and receive receive mercy. What kind of obstacles could they be? How about self-righteousness? There's one. Religious, political. How about idolatry? Self-reliance. False piety. Maybe money. Maybe earthly success. Maybe it's culture that is a barrier. But faith's wisdom creates a relentless desire to lay it all on the line at Jesus' feet. It is, in fact, if you remember, the difference between good soil and bad. So with that, I want you to see this last slide I have. We are the Gentile woman. (laughs) So do you realize, for those of you that have had this gift of faith and wisdom implanted in your heart, do you realize you are a part of a long line of wise, impressive, converted Gentiles, like this poor desperate woman? People that have been outcast by the philosophical and earthly elites, but unlike them, Christ's followers are endowed with spiritual wisdom and discernment about the true nature of the human heart through the gift of faith. Stunning wisdom that inspires you to cry out to Jesus, motivates you to follow him wherever Jesus leads you. Wisdom and insight that impresses Jesus as much as hers did, by the way. Why do I say that? Because you have insight that comprehends the true condition of the human heart and its desperate plight, desperate Gentiles with mega-faith, humility, relentlessly pursuing Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. Let me say it again. We are desperate Gentiles with mega-faith, humility, relentlessly pursuing Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. I don't know about you, But I find tremendous comfort in being a desperate Gentile woman in this story. I would prefer her story over any other religious or earthly success story I can think of. Faith that produces this tremendous spiritual insight, and that insight inspires a relentless pursuit of mercy. What a wonderful, humble, teachable woman! So back to my introduction, I asked you, what was your greatest moment of wisdom? Is it the same as the Gentile woman? It maybe was the day you realized you have only but one place you need to be, the feet of Jesus for mercy. For some of you, maybe that's today. This is your greatest moment of wisdom a pearl of wisdom so great, generated by the sovereign gift of faith implanted in your heart, wisdom that very many, very smart people are never able to grasp, but you have. Heavenly Dad, we like being desperately relentless for your mercy. We think about this scene where Jesus not only reveals her faith, but teaches the disciples a valuable lesson. Lord, I just pray that you would implant mega faith in the hearts of those that are seeking purpose. Give us the wisdom that James talks about, that you want to douse us with, that you implant in the hearts through the Holy Spirit, and through the Word. The wisdom that will inspire a relentless pursuit of an audience with you, where we say, Jesus, if I just get your crumbs, it'll be enough. We thank you for that, in Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we love you. Thank you for tuning in again. You'll be hearing more from us soon about how we're going to phase in a reopening. It's coming, and it's coming soon. Trust me, listen, if it were up to me, everybody be together right now but it wouldn't be the wisest thing, I don't think, for right now. We want to be safe, want to be prudent, but man, we miss you. Continuing, if you need anything, you let us know. We love you. We're praying for you. Watch your inboxes and the app notifications for information. Have a great week. Thank you.